Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the San Basel Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone is having a wonderful Wednesday. We are halfway through the week. Two more days to go until we get to the glorious Saturday and also just a few more days away from Thanksgiving. Hope everyone is getting ready for a wonderful holiday, safely, of course, with COVID-19 going around. But before we get to any of that, before we get to the weekend, there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk about that has happened over the last few days. I'm going to be getting into Songbird, the COVID pandemic-related film, getting a VOD release. I'm going to be getting into a bunch of trending trailers that have come out over the last day or two. And I'm also going to be talking about Judd Apatow's next film, Heading On Over over to Netflix. But the first thing that I do want to get into is some award season talk that came out from Variety via Clayton Davis, who went on to talk about Ryan Murphy's next venture on Netflix with his deal, and that is the highly anticipated The Prom, which is directed by Ryan Murphy, and it is starring a stacked cast of Meryl Streep, Nicole Kidman, Ariana DeBeau, you have James Corden, and also a newcomer coming into this cast in Joe Ellen Pellman. And this is based off of the hit Broadway show from basically 2019 when it when it was shut down from Broadway. It's about these four cast of characters from Broadway that get these really, really bad reviews on a play. And to kind of revitalize their image, they decide to go to this very conservative town in Indiana and help this this girl, this high school girl, who wants to go to the prom with her girlfriend. She's a lesbian and she wants to go to prom with her girlfriend, but because the town is very conservative, they do not allow that. So they want to go down there to help this girl out. But really, with what the, the real goals for what they want to do is to kind of revitalize their own images within the community and have their star shine bright once again again. So this was a very successful uh, Tony-nominated musical that came out. I remember hearing about it, and this is a film that was talked about a lot, and the trailer came out, and the one of the main things that have been kind of talked about with this film is with a December release date on Netflix, it's gotten a lot of awards attention coming over the last few months. And I always have said that I think this film is a Golden Globe contender, but I always never thought that it was a an Academy Award, an Oscar-worthy or Oscar-caliber type of film that could really break through with even in a COVID-19 pandemic, what's kind of turning out to be a very stat cast within Best Picture, Best Director, and even the acting categories as well. But according to Clayton Davis, who's the who's the film awards editor over at Variety, has come out and wrote and reported that Netflix, even with all the films that they are focusing on, are putting the prom also in consideration for not just Golden Globe consideration, but Oscar consideration. And they have revealed who they're going to put in within their cast, where they're going to stack each member of their cast. Because I think if there's one thing you can say about the Netflix films that have come out so far, and really a lot of award season films that are in contention right now, even though with everything going on with COVID-19, at this stage of the game, it's pretty early on in normal times, we would kind of be getting into the middle, into the think of things with the holiday season approaching, and a lot of studios kind of cramming in their award season contenders to get people to kind of see it and get word out and buzz out before nomination morning, which would be on January. 
But again, because of the uh, of the extenuating circumstances that we're in, that's not really the case right now. So Netflix has decided to put a lot of their cast members involved in this, and there have been a lot of ensemble pictures this year. You have the trial of the Chicago Seven. Mank is kind of an ensemble piece. You have One Night in Miami, which I'm going to be talking about a little later on, which they released their first trailer. But that's an ensemble film as well. And The Prom is also that. I listed off all the names that are a part of that film, and it is stacked. And Netflix is accordingly putting their cast members in the appropriate categories. So for Best Actress in a Leading Role, they're putting in Meryl Streep and Joe Ellen Pellman, who is the newcomer who is playing the girl who is trying to get the town to overturn this rule of not having same-sex relationships go to this prom. So I think that is a smart choice. And then you're also having James Corden go into the Best Acting category. You have Keegan-Michael Key and Andrew Rollins going in for Best Supporting Actor. And for Best Supporting Actress, you have the rest of the ladies that are involved, Ariana DeBose, Nicole. Kidman and Kerry Washington are also going to be involved with this picture and vying for a spot for the acting categories. And when we actually go through the listings of the supporting Oscars and the supporting members and do any of these people actually have a shot of actually getting nominated, I don't really think that's going to be the case for this film. I think James Corden, I don't know if he gets in for Best Actor in the Oscars. I mean, again, when you look at that list for Best Actor, like last year, it's starting to get pretty stacked. You have guarantees probably already with Anthony Hopkins, Chadwick Boseman after the first reviews from Ma Rainey came out is surging to potentially take over that top spot, not just for a nomination, but to potentially win the thing even at this early stage of the game for this year's award season. You also have Gary Oldman. You could have somebody from One Night in Miami. You could have somebody from The Judas and the Black Messiah is still a film that is up in the air right now. So there is still a bunch of people within that acting category that could get in. And I don't even put James Corden in my top 10. He might be in my top 15 at the most. And the same thing goes for Best Supporting Actor. Again, I've heard some good things coming out about the film from people that have seen it. Clayton Davis has had done really, not really a rave review, but a really good review for The Prom. Same thing for Peter Hammond over at for uh, at Deadline Hollywood. They have had high remarks for this film so far, but I don't know if they can get into that category as well. And for Supporting Actress, I mean, it's possible. You look at that talent, Nicole Kidman, Kerry Washington, you can't scratch your nose away from that. Ariana DeBose, who I thought was going to have a huge, huge, huge 2020. She's still going to have that with the prom, but I think she could have had an effective one-two punch of this film along with taking over the role from Rita Moreno from West Side Story, in which I think that could have vaulted her into the Best Supporting Actress conversation for that movie. But I think the prom is going to be a little bit tougher unless she blows her performance out of the water and blows the spectators with her performance. The one that I think could potentially get in and it's because of her credibility and it's it's become a motto at this point for whenever she is in some kind of awards contention for whatever film, you can't count Meryl out. You can never count her out. You always have to put her in your top five, even your top ten, and even insure 
closer, even if it seems like she might not have a chance. She got in for her musical role in Into the Woods because it's Meryl Streep. Who doesn't want the dame herself, the most acclaimed actress of all time, and honestly, the greatest actress of all time in the Oscars whenever you can get her in. She's putting out content all the time, and you see her in a film like The Prom, or you see her in something like Mary Poppins Returns, even if it's a small role, she's in the years expanded her horizons to other genres, and so I'm excited to see her have a lot of fun with this role in The Prom. Also, for the Academy, it'd be great for her to get a 22nd nomination, for her to get her 33rd Golden Globe nomination between the combination of what she's done in television and film as well. So there's a lot of storylines that could really ride into that conversation. And another fact that Clayton Davis actually pointed out that I found very interesting was that Meryl Streep doesn't go five years without a nomination. It's always the 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 window that she has gone without a nomination is is usually around five years. And the last time she got a nomination was for her role in The Post with Tom Hanks and directed by Steven Spielberg. So some time has passed that she could potentially get another nomination as well. The last time she won wasn't till 2011, 2012 when she won playing Margaret Thatcher in The Iron Lady. So I don't know if she'll win this one, but again, you can't count her out for really being in this film, if she blows out of the water like she does everything else, I think the Academy could potentially nominate her, and Netflix might push hard for the dame herself, Meryl Streep. For Joe Ellen Pellman, I'm not really sure. I, I don't think she has a shot, especially if she's in the same category as Meryl Streep. I think Meryl Streep would take a lot of the light from Joe Ellen Pellman when it comes to name recognition, uh, unless Joe Ellen Pellman blows the spectators out of the water, like I was saying about Ariana DeBeau. So again, when it comes to the actual awards contention for Oscars, I don't know if it, if it really has a solidifying shot. I'm still on the reservations about that. Best picture... I don't know. I'm not really sure about that. When it comes to a lot of the below the line categories though, especially from a lot of these interviews and press interviews that Ryan Murphy has been giving, something like production design, original song, I could definitely see them getting some of those art art awards that come with the crafting of this. And especially when you hear about Ryan Murphy talking about recreating Broadway because they couldn't shoot in New York City on an actual street and they wanted to have that authenticity, they actually recreated the street in Los Angeles. And actually Ryan Murphy talks about how they actually measured out the width of the streets and the corners so they can make it as authentic as possible. And if that set piece really blows people away and the rest of the film within their production design does the same thing, which it seems like it does with its lighting and the glitz and the glamour and the stage production sets that they provide within the film, I think it could get, it could get a production design nomination, a, a costume nomination when you see a lot of the, the designs of the dresses that something like a Meryl Streep or Nicole Kidman wear where the colors really kind of pop out there and it kind of, it, it reveals things about their personality, which is always great about costume and makeup and hairstyling. So I could definitely see those art categories getting nominated for the prom. And 
I think if this has any kind of shot of winning things for best picture, for best the acting, like I said before, it's within the Golden Globes. It's within the Hollywood Foreign Press Association because of the comedy musical category. I honestly think this film is going to be big. I said it months ago. I said it when the, the trailer came out. And I think a lot of prognosticators are agreeing with my sentiment as well, where this film, for the times that we live in right now, is going to be huge because people want escapism. And I think in a film like The Prom, especially for theater goers, Broadway fanatics that like Hamilton in July, they're not going to have anywhere to turn to for Broadway for it could be another year until Broadway really comes back in full swing. So they're going to eat anything up that they possibly can. And to have something like this with the prom based off of a Broadway musical, you have musical numbers. It feels like Broadway, like a, like a musical come to life on, on screen in visual format. They're going to eat that up all day, every day. And this could be a huge holiday win for Netflix in which the prom becomes this year's big musical extravaganza. Even though it's not playing on the big screen, it's still playing on a medium that people have a lot of access to on Netflix. So I think this could be a huge, huge, huge hit for Netflix, especially in the times that we live in right now. It's the holiday season and the prom fits within that, even though it doesn't take place. I don't, at least I don't think it takes place in the Christmas time or the holiday times. It just has that feeling of being a, a perfect holiday film for the whole family. It's about inclusion and diversity and accepting people and loving people. And I think that's the kind of thing that people are looking for right now. And everyone can get involved with it. Every single genre. This really could be a four quadrant film for everybody to really enjoy, even though it is a musical. So I think this really has the potential to be something big. It's got the cast. And for Ryan Murphy, I've heard a lot of interviews over the last month or so about him creating this film and how fast they put it on the, the fast track to get this film made. And Netflix was all in from the very beginning. It, it, Ryan Murphy said that he wanted to adapt this when he saw the play in January of last year. And then by February, they had the cast who he got every single person he wanted to, Meryl, Nicole, James, and Kerry Washington. Those were his four that he wanted for those roles. And he got four out of four, which is impressive for any creator that has a dream list for who they wanna work with. And you get those four big names to work with you is very, very impressive. So to get that, to get everybody on the same page, ready to go, and to shoot this by November, by December, and still have to shoot it during COVID-19, it sounds like even though they had a few scenes left to shoot, they still had to make sure that if they wanted to get it out for the holiday time, they had to come up with these protocols and instances to get whatever they needed to get done so they could come out on the designated time that they wanted to. So this is a big achievement for Netflix, for Ryan Murphy, and he has a passion for this. And you could sense it even in the words, if you read the interviews on Deadline and Variety, and even in the Hollywood Reporter cover story that came out in October, when you when you hear the words and you see the words, you could just hear the passion in Ryan Murphy with something like this. And I've said before that, when it comes to directing, Ryan Murphy has only done two films and they're not really that well-known movies and they don't really have any kind of acclaim. It was, and it was really before Ryan Murphy became Ryan Murphy for what we know on television. Then he went through Glee and American Horror Story, American Crime Story. We know his stature in today's day and age right now. 
and the importance that his creativity has. You look at something like a pose, which talks about transgenders and, and inclusivity in that particular space, he gives voices to people that are in the minority right now. So I think for him to have a passion about this story is remarkable. And I think it needs to be heard. And you could just hear that he knows the, the direction he wants to go with this film. And I think this, again, it could be a very, very, very big hit for Netflix around this time period. So they got a lot of films, but I think they know what they have in the prom could be very, very special. And from the trailer, again, I talked about the trailer. It looks exactly what I thought it was going to be. Big numbers, flashy sequences, some heart, some laughs. That's what we need right now with everything going on and during the holiday times with COVID-19. So I think this could really, really make some noise. Again, is it going to make noise for the Oscars? Again, I think below the line it can make some noise. Top the line, acting, Meryl might be able to make some noise because of the pedigree that she holds within the Academy, within the award bodies but I really think that's going to really be it and then of course the Golden Globes I think it'll rack up a lot of nominations there could potentially sweep those categories if it really translates and hits the 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 spot that a lot of people think the prom can hit so look out for it I don't think it's a big Oscar contender but when it comes to these these the the placement of these actors it makes a lot of sense but I don't think it's gonna really amount to anything within the Academy Awards but definitely look out for the Golden Globes and for to really make some damage at this year's Hollywood Foreign Press Associated Dinner when the awards body really kind of comes out. So what do you guys think about the prom and its placement within the Academy Award? Do you think it's going to be as big of a hit as I'm claiming it to be? Do you think it might not be? I really want to know what you guys think. Let me know and leave your thoughts below. Now moving on to, well, really kind of staying within the realm of Netflix, but moving on to another creator who seems like he's eyeing his project for the streaming service, and that is the comedic director Judd Apatow, who is coming off his latest success story from earlier this summer with The King of Staten Island, and is moving over to the streamer for his next film. And the details surrounding his next film is that it'll follow a group of actors and actresses who are stuck inside a pandemic bubble at a hotel attempting to complete a film. And according to the report from Deadline Hollywood, the, the it is set to be an ensemble film that will rival the likes of Knives Out and The Disaster Artist. So right away, when I hear Judd Apatow's coming out with a new film, I'm all on board with it because I think he is a great comedic director who has created films that are are just great comedies. And they're not comedies that are just straight funny throughout and just crude jokes. They're actually heartfelt films that have a story and characters that are involved from the 40-year-old version to Knocked Up to Funny People. And then, of course, to his latest film, King of Staten Island. I think for him to go to Netflix is one, an interesting choice because you, when you think Judd Apatow, he is associated with Universal from his first film of 40. But I think according to the report, it sounds like because of the pandemic and because the studios are really kind of scrambling around to make sure that they can keep themselves afloat, he doesn't really want to go to them for the funds right now. It is instead for right now, just for this one film, going to Netflix and... Again, I'm excited for this. I think if you can get an ensemble that can rival the likes of Knives Out, I mean, we saw that film last year and we know what kind of 
performances we got out of that cast within that film from the the main performers like Ana de Armas, Daniel Craig, Chris Evans to even not even well, really like little supporting roles like Tony Collette, Jamie Lee Curtis. They all knocked it out of the park. So if Judd Apatow can get something like that for this next film, I am all for it. And I think for a lot of people, when they're coming up with new projects, new ideas, they're going to really enforce a lot of these COVID-19 ideas to be involved because I think you're seeing on television, you're going to see in movies, you can't really just ignore the times that we're in right now. It's very, very tough to just kind of pretend that it's an, it's everything is sunshine and daisies or we, we're not social distancing, we're not wearing masks. So for Judd Apatow to kind of just dive right in to the fact that we're in this pandemic age and attribute it to his next movie, I think is a very smart idea. And I think it's going to really help him kind of relate to a lot of people and people could connect to this film with his characters because again with his films what make them i think really special is the fact that you have great laughs great humor jokes but you also again have great characters and some heart within the movies and that's what judd apatow is always remembered for and when you when you go into his films you know you're experiencing not just a comedy but really a dramatity in his film so and i think that's what makes him a genius as a director and as a writer as well in the collaborations that he has with all of his stars. So I think this is going to be exciting. I think for Netflix, again, this is a huge get for them. And it continues a great kind of year that they have been having and a great trend that they've been having in getting all these acclaimed artists to work with them from Marty Scorsese to David Fincher to a Judd Apatow, Spike Lee. I think a lot of these directors know that there's another avenue than just going to studio to, to the studio. And even though they want to make films for the bet for the big picture, for the big screen, excuse me, they know that if they want more creative freedom, if they know that they can go somewhere, if they want to make a personal project of theirs, that there are streaming services that will take them gladly and give them basically carpe blanche to do whatever they want to do in the vision that they have. So I think for Judd Apatow, I think he'll go back to Universal at one point, but I think for right now, he knows that the safety net is at a streaming service like a Netflix who can front the money for him, whatever it is, and be able to create the film that he wants to create. So this is exciting, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing who they cast for this film because Judd Apatow isn't, again, isn't a nobody. When you look at his films, he does cast very big. He has some really big A-listers for him, so I think if we get something that again rivals the likes of Knives Out, The Disaster Artist, it could be very interesting. So I think the next step moving forward is to seeing who Netflix and Judd Apatow are able to get for this film. So I think that's the next thing to really look forward to and get excited about with Judd Apatow's next film. What do you guys think about that? Let me know and leave your thoughts below. And the next thing I want to go to is from Netflix to Video On Demand and talk about the film that has a lot of mixed buzz coming out of it since its first trailer, and that is the Michael Bay-produced Songbird. It stars K.J. Apa, Sophia Carson, Craig Robinson, Bradley Whitford, Paul Walter Hauser, Alexandria Daddario, and Demi Moore, and it's set to take place about two years after, or really two years into the pandemic, and it's Instead of being called COVID-19, it has been mutated to COVID-23. And within this world, the post-apocalyptic Los Angeles, it really focuses in on this love story between KJ Apa's character and Sophia Carson. 
And Sophia Carson is somebody who seems like she could potentially be infected with this disease. And KJ Appa's character is somebody who is immune. And it kind of becomes this race against time where he goes to rescue her and take her out of this place before she is put into these camps that are kind of quarantining all the people that are sick with COVID-23. And when the trailers came out, it received a whole lot of backlash for feeling way too close, really home, or like really hit home that we're still involved with this. It's 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 taking place during the pandemic. And I, I don't think that's something that people want to A, rush out to the theaters to see if they feel safe enough to go to the theaters right now. And even if it was on home release, that could be a question as well. And people were wondering, and I was wondering, is this gonna go on VOD? Is it gonna go out in theaters? Because they didn't really give an explanation for that. All they said of what was is that it was coming out in 2021. So now it seems like we finally have some more details on the release strategy for this film. And according to STX Films, which is which is producing this, is distributing the film, doing all the fun stuff that a, that a studio does, they have announced that the film will be releasing on premium video on demand on December 11th of this year. It'll be coming out for the usual price that we have been accustomed to during this pandemic of what comes out on PVOD of $19.99 for a 48-hour rental. And then in 2021, it will be going from PVOD to a as-of-yet-to-be-named streaming service. So that is the release strategy for Songbird right now. And to me, that's no surprise whatsoever because Really what this film is going to be remembered for, if anybody watches it, is that it'll be really the one of the first domestic films to go into production, specifically going into production in Los Angeles. Because at that time period in the summertime, studios were starting to ramp up productions back up in other countries. Like the UK, Jurassic World Dominion was really starting to get back into production. The Avatar sequels were getting back into production in New Zealand. And also, they were looking at potentially doing stuff with the Batman as well. So studios were slowly starting to get back up into production, but nothing was really happening here in the States because in the States, COVID-19 was still running rampant and it's still running rampant right now, but it was doing that in the middle of the summer as well. So Songbird was really getting attention for being the first, not major, but uh, first film production with somebody like a Michael Bay, with somebody like stars, like a like Paul Walter Hauser, Sophia Carson, KJ Apa, names that people recognize being shot in Los Angeles. And so other than that, I don't really know what this film is going to be remembered for. I think it's, it hits, again, it hits too, too close to home at this point. And I'm somebody who, when seeing the pictures, hearing the details, I was interested in it. But then seeing the trailer, I'm like, it, it hits a little, not even a little, way too close to home at this particular moment in time. And, I, and again, I said this at the time of the trailer, I'm not somebody who has known somebody to get sick with COVID-19 or really perish from COVID-19. So I can't even imagine if you're one of the over 200,000 people that have died from COVID, if you're one of those people that have family members within those 2,000 people, how hurt you're going to be while watching this. It's going to be like watching, it's going to be like PTSD watching a movie like this. So 
or worse, really, because of, of how far they push it. And again, if this was something where we didn't have COVID-19 and this was 2019, I don't think there would be a problem because it looks like a paint-by-numbers action pandemic thriller in a way that is is reminiscent of The Purge a little bit as well. So I just think it hits a little too close to home. And when it comes to the streaming services, I always thought that Netflix was going to pick this up. And I still think they are the number one option. I think with something like this, that could potentially happen. If not, then I think Amazon could be number two. And I think you could flip-flop them either way because STX has a relationship with Amazon. They sold one of their films, My Spy, with Dave Bautista in the summertime to Amazon Prime. And according to the numbers, apparently, we don't know the numbers, but according to the reports, Amazon was happy enough that it did huge numbers within Amazon Prime that they are wanting to greenlight a sequel to that movie. So maybe that might not have happened in in theaters if that film were to come out in a normal circumstance. So I don't know what's going to happen with, with Songbird. I'm still going to watch it and either I'll have, I'll be too emotional to watch it because of everything that's going on and I don't know if anyone else is really going to, to watch this, but I think it makes sense to put it on PVOD. I think it also makes sense to put it on a streaming service because you're not going to get your money back with this film in theaters because even if it were to come out in theaters i don't think you're gonna get people to go see this movie even if people feel safe about going to to the movie theaters for wherever movie theaters are still open in the states i don't think people are gonna go see this movie i think they're gonna want to escape from everything that's going on right now not not entrench themselves even further in the pandemic with a pandemic thriller so i don't think this is going to do well, but I do think it'll do somewhat decent because of the strategy that they're following with PVOD and streaming on on a streaming service somewhere, which I'm sure we'll find out about in the next month or so, so they can get an idea for what they want to do with this film and probably see the kind of money they make on PVOD before putting it on a streaming service. So what do you guys think about Songbird moving to PVOD instead of going into theaters? Let me know down below and leave your thoughts below. I'm very curious to see what you guys have to say about this film. And so moving away for, for a little bit from movie news that is going on right now, and I wanna jump in to some trending trailers that are coming out right now in the world of Hollywood. It's trending trailer time on the Sam Bissell podcast. And the first one that I wanna talk about right now is the semi-new trailer for the Justice League director's cut from Zack Snyder. So yesterday was the one year anniversary, November 17th, of really the birth of what we now know to be the Snyder Cut in the sense that what a lot of people that are experts in this story that have been seeing is that the the inception of the announcement of the Snyder Cut in May of this year came from a year ago from yesterday in which fans went on social media, specifically Twitter, and really got the hashtag release the Snyder Cut going. Almost to the point that you had Zack Snyder tweet about it. You had major stars like Jason Momoa, who plays Aquaman, tweet about it. Ray Fisher, I believe, tweeted about it. Gal Gadot tweeted about it. Even Ben Affleck tweeted about this. And from a lot of sources that talked to Warner Media, Warner Brothers, about actually taking the Snyder Cut seriously, they attribute it to the fact that fans really spoke their minds on that date in 2019, a year ago. So in honor of that, 
Zack Snyder decided to re-put out, recut the trailer that was showed at DC Fandom with some new added features to it and about like a, a second or two of new footage within the, the the Snyder Cut. And the reason that they, they re-put the trailer out there is because in the DC Fandom one that came out, Hallelujah was the song that was playing throughout. And apparently a few weeks ago, Warner Brothers HBO Max got hit with a, with a copyright issue. So it seems like they had to take it down and rework it. And I guess it was ready and, and, and good enough that they were able to re-put it out there with no worries whatsoever. And so this time, they put out two versions of this new trailer. They put out one that was released by Zack Snyder on his Twitter account, which was a monochrome version. And then HBO Max put out a color version of this trailer. So basically, the Zack Snyder one was black and white. And then the one that came out from HBO Max was kind of the restored color version that we got at DC Fandom. And we only got, again, just a few snippets of new footage. Nothing that was excessive. Nothing that completely revamped the mood, the tone, and the feeling of what we got from that first trailer. But we saw a few new clips from Darkseid and what looks to be kind of retelling that past story of the first war with the mother boxes. And then we got a, a few more extra shots of, of Cyborg and his past. And we got this really cool hologram shot of Superman with the Justice League members kind of watching it, maybe reminiscing about Superman. And that's the point of maybe they decide to bring him back from the dead. So there were some really interesting shots within it, but nothing that was really different. And I think it's going to change a lot of people's minds. The one thing that I thought was really cool, though, was the one that Snyder released, the monochrome one, in which he did a trailer breakdown on his favorite social media account, Vero, and said when he was initially working on this years ago before he stepped down, he worked on it in a monochrome setting before restoring all the colors to it. So he wanted people to see it from that perspective. And I got to say, seeing it in black and white and monochrome, it, it was cool. I really enjoyed it. I thought it brought out, not colors, but it brought out a crispness to it. It had a different feeling to it. And I think with, with the music of the slow rendition of Hallelujah, it worked really well. So I, I like when, when people do that. And for me, it, I said it on Twitter, it reminds me of the monochrome version of Mad Max Fury Road that George Miller released a few years after the initial re release of, of Fury Road in 2015. So if Snyder decides after the initial run of his version of Justice League on HBO Max, and wants to put out a monochrome version, I'd be all for it, honestly, especially if I like what I see in the Justice League that he puts out. I definitely want to see a monochrome version. And this, just seeing the little snippets of it in this in this two minutes, two minute, 30, 30 second trailer, I'd be all for that and really interested to see what he could bring out of that. And some other details that he described in the Snyder Cut and what to expect is that all the shots that we're seeing it might be stuff that we know, but apparently there's, again, this is gonna be a four hour miniseries, or really, if they're gonna, he's gonna cut it up too and, and make it a four hour movie as well, but either way, it's gonna be four plus hours of watching this. He said that there are still two and a half hours of unseen footage that we don't know about, and it's true. I mean, when you look at the, the, the trailer for Justice League, the, the ones that Zack Snyder has been putting out, you can kind of say, oh, well, it's kind of the same thing that he has been kind of putting out there and basically is this the same Justice League movie that we saw in, in 2017, but 
that was a two-hour movie mandated to be cut down to two hours by the studio. So there's got to be so much more content that we're not seeing that expands the story. And so that, to me, gets me really excited. And, and, and I agreed with when Eric Davis put this out a few days ago that there's going to be a lot of critics for this. And people aren't happy about this. People are happy about this. And I'm one for somebody who initially I, I was a little iffy on this. And, and, I'm, and I'm still not for directors always getting a director's cut. And whatever the film is, they should be able to put out what the film that they want to, which is why I think a lot of people are going over to streaming services right now, like Amazon or Netflix, because they get, again, carpe blanche to do whatever they want. But I think with something like the Snyder Cut, really kind of looking back on it, it's it's more than just a, a director getting his way. It, like a lot of people have been saying, and I know somebody that's writing a book on it now, it's a movement. It's something that is for the fans. And I would be lying if I didn't say seeing the DC fandom trailer, seeing the new details, seeing what Snyder's doing, seeing that he's able to kind of create a newer version, a more updated version, and add some more details, do reshoots, add more, have some more principal photography, really. I think is I think is cool and uh, it gets me excited and more intrigued to watch this every single month that goes by. And again, I think this is all for a great cause. Even yesterday, it was all about hashtag Us United was the trending was the trending hashtag. It was about raising awareness of suicide and suicide prevention and that you are not alone because really this is all dedicated towards Snyder's daughter who really was the reason he stepped down because she committed suicide. The reason he stepped down was to attend to his family. And then Warner Brothers... Being who they are and being sleazy salesmen sometimes and businessmen, it's business as well. They saw that tragically as an opportunity to do what they wanted to do because they didn't want to go in Zack Snyder's way anymore after the results of what they saw with BVS a year beforehand. So I think what we're seeing now is the celebration of Snyder being able to do what he always wanted to do and create something his way. And whenever you've seen Zack Snyder material, there's always been a director's cut because he is somebody that films to to exquisite detail. I really have not known a director that has as much as he does and he has to conform to the to the studio mentality because again for the studio it makes sense that they can't run a three three and a half hour film unless you're a potential billion dollar hit like Avengers Endgame. It, it it just doesn't usually work that way. But Snyder is somebody who who would rather make a four hour movie and have all these details invested in it. And I think he's finally going to be able to do that. He's done it on on BVS. He's done it on Watchmen, where he had these directors cut that came out after the initial release and are considered better films than what came before because of the details that might have been left out in the initial release and the initial cut. And the same thing is going to happen with Justice League right now. So. I think, again, this is something for the fans, and and I'm going to come at this from a fan perspective. I'm somebody who I might not have enjoyed the theatrical cut of BVS or Suicide Squad or even Justice League at this point. I I, I drank the Justice League Kool-Aid at one point, but over the years, I've come off of it, as you can tell, but I always loved the potentiality 
of this universe with Henry Cavill's Superman. We're seeing that with Wonder Woman. We're seeing it with Aquaman. I wish we could see more of Ben Affleck's Batman. There was so much potential in that. And whether we get more of this or not, the fact that we can see some kind of fulfillment to what Snyder wanted to do, I think is a great thing. And again, it's because fans wanted this. If fans didn't ask for this, this would not be happening. And Snyder acknowledges that. This is a fan movement. This is a fan reasoning. This is something that is for people that have loved me, for have loved my work, for have loved what I did in the DC universe and want to see my version fulfilled. Now, whether it's his initial version or now what we're getting in an updated version with some new ideas to it, whatever it is, he should be able to do that. And again, not a lot of directors get a second opportunity like this and at that same time getting carpe blanche to do whatever he wants with no studio interference from Warner Media or Warner Brothers and just be able to shoot whatever he wants when he wants to and how he wants to do it. So uh, you can't ask for anything more than that. And again, I'm th- th- there's more of a conversation to be had of should this be allowed in the future? That's a conversation for another time. Just to focus on the Snyder Cut, looking at it from d- all perspectives and seeing where everything is aligned, I think this is it's something to be celebrated because of what this movement is. So I think seeing this trailer, again, doesn't change from where I was on August 22nd, but it still gets me excited. I think it just reignites the excitement that I have of actually seeing this, my surprise excitement for it. And again, probably the only takeaway that I took from it is I would love a monochrome version of it, especially if I enjoy his four hours or four episodes, however I see it on HBO Max or somewhere else. If I enjoy it, I would love to see a monochrome version of it. And the two minutes and 30 seconds definitely intrigued me. So we'll see what happens. But again, didn't needle my way any more to loving it or to hating it, but I definitely am intrigued by it and I can't wait for this to come out in 2021 and to make this kind of be one of the first major, major, major things we have gotten in a long, long time, especially after the year that we've had with 2020, we haven't really gotten a superhero flick, a major superhero flick since February with Birds of Prey. So if all still goes according to the way it is right now and we get this in the first half of 2021, this could be the first thing since Birds of Prey. So I think comic book fans are going to be clamoring for this because of the the dearth of content that is not there in the comic book world right now. And all we've had is just rumors, speculations, trailers. That's all we've really had. So, well, actually, I shouldn't say that because we're getting WandaVision on January 15th. So it'll be the second thing to come out since February after WandaVision. So, but those two things, I think comic book fans are going to eat up. Even if you're not a fan of Justice League, I think seeing Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman all there, people are going to watch it no matter what. So I think this has the potential to be big and it'll be exciting to see what happens in 2021 with this release. What do you guys think about the new trailer for the Justice League director's cut? Let me know and leave your thoughts. And then moving on to another trailer that I want to get into coming from Netflix. And this is one of the potential awards contenders coming from Netflix this year, specifically for best actress in a leading role for Vanessa Kirby. And that is Pieces of a Woman. This is a film that was getting a lot of traction from the film festival circuit earlier in the year in August and September when it premiered at TIFF and premiered 
at the Venice Film Festival. And all the acclaim went to Vanessa Kirby's performance and also the first 30 minutes, which kind of detailed a birth scene. And this is a film that is about the the death of a child at birth and this family's kind of of grieving in that space and also the legal fight of making sure that the people who wronged this family, who led them astray, are brought to justice. And it stars Vanessa Kirby, also stars Shia LaBeouf, Ellen Bernstein, and Sarah Snook. And I don't know how to say the, the, the director's name, but this is the director's first English language film. He shot in a lot of other international countries over the years, but this is his first one coming to the to English, to America, and he's got a great cast involved with him. And this this trailer put a gut punch in me. And I can understand just from this this two minute and 30 second trailer, what people are really kind of talking about, specifically with Vanessa Kirby's character in that she's somebody who is trying to fight strong for her family, for her husband, and showing that she has moved on. But you can see deep down that she hasn't moved on from something as 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 tragic as losing a child at birth when you've had it for such a long time. And to kind of see that transpire, Vanessa Kirby, I haven't seen that kind of performance for her since The Crown. And she was very good in The Crown. That was a star-turning performance for her. And she's gotten involved with a lot of action with the Mission Impossible franchise, with Hobbs and Shaw last year. But this is really, I think, her breakout tour-de-force performance in really kind of showing that I am a leading actress. I can do all these great things, and you're going to see me for that. And again, she's carrying this film's Oscar pedigree right now with her potential nomination for this film. Some Oscar pundits also potentially have her winning. Again, it's a long ways away, but it's it even it sounds like she's a lock at this point to getting a nomination. And from seeing this trailer, again, I haven't seen the movie yet, but from seeing this trailer, I can't argue from that, seeing the way that her performance goes. And somebody else who hasn't really gotten a lot of love, but I think is, is showing a really great acting chops in this, is Shia LaBeouf, who honestly, in the last two years, has really, really taken a turn for the best with his career. I mean, from the Peanut Butter Falcon to his horrifyingly excellent performance in Honey Boy to what he's doing in Pieces of a Woman, it's just fantastic. And what a turn from the kind of crazy years he had between this kind of resurgence that he's having and the Transformers franchise. I mean, it's absolutely incredible to see. So I don't know if he's going to get a lot of uh, awards love, but he should because it seems like he puts on a great performance as well for a grieving father who's trying to put the family together as well. But his wife is really kind of doing that. And it seems like there's a lot of friction there. And I'm and it seems like the chemistry between the two of them is really, really is good. And that was one thing that I was interested in to see how is somebody like Shia LaBeouf going to interact with Vanessa Kirby. And I buy them as a married couple going through this tragic experience right now. So it definitely intrigued me. This is definitely going to be talking about ringing in the new year on Netflix when this comes out on January 7th. I mean, it's just going to start with a gut punch in pieces of a woman. So, uh, but I'm definitely interested in it. I'm excited to see what this film is about. Uh, the 30 minutes, I might have to pause and then watch the rest of it at another time because of how much I'm hearing about how just gut-wrenching and, and, and mesmerizing the direction is in that birth scene. So we'll see what happens. But I've heard a lot of great things about this film. And judging by the trailer, it seems like those the praise 
bestowed on Vanessa Kirby in this film seems like it is valid, given what I've seen so far. And I'm and the next step, of course, is seeing the rest of the film. And if you guys have seen the trailer for Pieces of a Woman, what did you think about it? Let me know and leave your thoughts. And one of the last two trailers that I want to talk about is another award season hopeful that definitely is on my radar come January 2021. And that is the very, very acclaimed film coming out of the festival circuit as well, One Night in Miami. It is the directorial debut of the magnificent actress Regina King. And it stars, well, I shouldn't say that just yet. It is written by Kemp Powers, who could be pulling off a double Oscar nomination for the screenplay categories with this film and Soul. So it's written by Kemp Powers, and it stars an all-star lineup of Kensley Benadir, Eli Gorey, Aldous Hodges, and Leslie Odom Jr. And basically, the, the premise of this film is that it takes place a night in Miami, obviously from the title. It takes place after Cassius Clay, before he becomes Muhammad Ali, wins his first belt his first title in boxing and then he goes out to celebrate and he goes out to celebrate with Malcolm X Jim Brown and Sam Cook and basically it's an interaction talking about where America is as a culture as a race how African Americans fit into that they're either different ideologies and how they kind of clash with one another but in the end they're brothers of the same race fighting for the same thing which is equality in America and basically speaks to what we're dealing with right now in 2020 and I heard so much hype for this film coming out of Venice coming out of TIFF I was really interested in it and it was always up there on a lot of people's list for in terms of locks best picture best director best screenplay the acting has a chance to be nominated as well so I was really interested to see some footage from this film finally and the trailer's only a minute and a half but man does it pack a punch for a minute and a half it seems like it's it's fun it's playful but then it gets serious with a lot of these social themes and and, and just seems like a really really great time the, the the direction looks impeccable from regina king the performances look incredible i think eli gory makes a really charismatic muhammad ali Kingsley Benadir, who is on the rise, seems like he pulls off a really good Malcolm X. And Leslie Odom Jr. seems like he's just doing his thing as Sam Cooke. So, and of course, I can't forget Aldous Hodges portraying Jim Brown as well. So, so the chemistry seems like it's there. And this just gets me more excited for one night in, in Miami. And as somebody who is covering the Oscars, when you talk about your top films that you still want to see that I haven't seen yet, this is one of the top ones that I am going to watch right when it comes out on Amazon Prime, put it up, watch it, and just let it wash over me for the potential greatness of this film. So I'm really into this. I love the the teaser trailer. Great first impression for me for seeing footage of this film, and I cannot wait to see it when it comes out on January 15th on Amazon Prime. And it's also coming out in theaters on Christmas Day. So if you live in a city, a select city, probably, I don't know specifically where it's going to be playing yet because of the pandemic that we're living in. Usually it would be DC, or not DC, but LA and New York. But because theaters are not playing in the city, in both cities right now, they're probably going to be playing somewhere else. So if you want to check it out, if you can find it near you, it'll come out on Christmas Day. But if you want to wait and don't feel comfortable going to the movies, it'll be out the, fall, the few weeks afterwards, after New Year's in 2021, on 
January 15th. So you don't have to wait too long to see this film after it comes out on Christmas Day. If you have seen the trailer for this film, what did you think about it? Let me know down below and leave your thoughts. And of course, I had to save the best trailer for last. And that is the animated Warner Brothers film, Tom and Jerry, based off of the classic Hanna-Barber cartoon, Tom and Jerry are at it once again, this time in the big city, the Big Apple, New York City itself. It's directed by Tim Story, who, if you know the name, he did the Fantastic Four films with Jessica Alba, and he also did the two ride-along films with Ice Cube and Kevin Hart. The cast of the the live-action cast members in this film are Chloe Grace Moretz, Michael Pena, and Ken John. So, first off, I honestly, as a kid, I liked watching Tom and Jerry. I, I even though it's the same shtick over and over again, a, a cat chasing a mouse, they found new, innovative ways to do it. And as a kid, you eat that stuff up. And honestly, watching the trailer, not watching the trailer, I have no doubt that kids would go see this movie, pandemic or not pandemic. I, you, I think people would take their kids to go see this movie. It's, it's a family film. However, it seems like it's a bad family film throwing it back to the 2000s. This reminds me of Space Jam, Looney Tunes, but not in the in the best way possible. And the reason I say Looney Tunes again is it was Looney Tunes back in action with Brendan Fraser and Steve Martin, but it just it does not look good. It, it looks like uh, it, it looks like a, a a bad throwback film that you would kind of see. Even it reminds me of like the Smurfs in a way, and with with Neil Patrick Harris, and it just does doesn't impress me. Again, I'm a fan of Tom and Jerry, but also the animation just really seems out of place. And I think for how great technology has become in integrating live action with CGI, whether that be motion capture or impeccable work done by companies like ILM or others like Weta, it's just, it's, it just doesn't work. And you can clearly tell how disoriented, I got disoriented between cutting to the animation of Tom and Jerry then cutting to the, to the live action of Chloe Grace Moretz. It just kind of felt really wonky to me. So I think parents could potentially take their kids, whether they take the advice of people of if it's bad or not, but not impressive. I don't think this is going to be something that people are going to go see. But again, if, if parents, again, A, if we're in a world where people are safe enough and feel comfortable enough of going to the theater when this comes out on March 5th, if we get to that point, maybe parents might take their kids to go see this if they're looking for something to do. And that could happen in a normal world. But again, I think in the world that we live in right now, I don't think that's going to be the case. And honestly, I think if Warner Brothers has to move this, if we're in a still in a state where we are now, where we're still not in a vaccine or we still have to social distance, wear masks, and theaters aren't able to up the percentage that they can have for capacity, this could probably move to HBO Max. This feels like something where Warner Brothers can be like, you know what? We can't have this come out in March. We can't move it anywhere else. We have other important films that have bigger budgets, have bigger potential in them that we have to focus on. We can just move this right to HBO Max. And it wouldn't surprise me if they did that in the next few months. So be on the lookout for that scenario to take place. However, when it comes to the trailer, 
not impressive. And I don't think I was going to be impressed either way, but I definitely was not impressed with the animation. It looks completely out of it from the live action to the animation. It just doesn't integrate itself well. I think especially for the day and age we live in with technology in computer animation, mixing it with live animation or not live animation, but live action, you can do a lot better than what was done with this trailer and what seemed like to be this entire movie. So not impressed. And I don't think this is going to be something that's going to come out in theaters. Again, even if we're allowed to have theaters back up open again in a safe capacity in March, I think this could move over to HBO Max like Scoob did earlier in the year. So what do you guys think about the Tom and Jerry trailer? Let me know what you think and leave your thoughts below. I really love to know what you think about it. Very intrigued to see if you guys agree with me on this trailer and all the trending trailers. And I also want to know what was your favorite trending trailer that I talked about? And just to, to rattle them off again, I did one for the director's cut of Justice League, the Snyder cut, Tom and Jerry, Pieces of a Woman, and One Night in Miami. So what was your favorite? If you have seen those trailers of the four that I talked about, let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. And moving on back into the world of movie news and specifically talking about the DC universe. So apparently yesterday, according to reports, the Batman spinoff show, which is created by Matt Reeves, is taking place within his universe that is starring Robert Pattinson and Jeffrey Wright as Commissioner Gordon. The Batman spinoff show has lost its showrunner. The impeccable Terrence Winter is leaving due to creative differences. And this isn't just like you're letting go of some Joe Schmo showwriter. You're letting go of one of the gems in Hollywood right now when it comes to showrunning that anybody would want in the industry. This guy was a writer on critically acclaimed shows such as Sopranos. I think you might have heard of that. Boardwalk Empire. If you know HBO, you might know that show with Steve Buscemi, and he was a showrunner for Vinyl. Oh, and on top of it, he was the screenwriter for one of Martin Scorsese's recent hits in recent memory, The Wolf of Wall Street. You might have heard about that movie. So he has that on his list. He wrote on one of, if not some people think it's the greatest show of all time, and he was a show, a writer and I think a showrunner on an acclaimed series on HBO as well in Boardwalk Empire. And you let this guy go. And for for what this Batman spinoff show is acclaimed to be, talked about to be, it's going to take place within the first year of Batman's career, Robert Pattinson's Batman, and it's going to deal with the corruption within the DC offices, within the police force, and it's going to take place with this corrupt cop who is kind of on the side of doing what's right, but also doing what's wrong and, and being kind of in a gray area. And honestly, from what the resume of what you see of, of Terrence Winter, that sounds right up his alley. And you couldn't agree with him? I, I don't. And see, this is the thing that mind boggles me with Warner Brothers. And, and even when it seems like they have their stuff together, something like this always happens. And I don't know how you let this guy go. And also the thing that frustrates me is when you... You announce something, you should be not just in the inception of writing it, but you should be writing and getting ready to go into production. It sounded like you, you, it sounds like you weren't even in production yet. It didn't even sound like you were done writing the scripts yet. 
And you're going to have to go back to writing the scripts again if you need another show writer, a showrunner for this. And I don't know who you're going to get that can top the likes of Terrence Winter with those credentials that line up for what you want to do with this film about corruption and greed. It's right up his alley. So I don't know who you get that can replace this guy, but I hope it's somebody that is good because... Again, I'm still excited to see this, and I'm excited to see The Batman. Batman's going to be one of my most anticipated films for the next few years, and whenever it comes out, it'll probably be my number one most anticipated film, unless some other trailer comes along that wowed me like that trailer did at DC Fandom. So... I'm excited for this because you you still have Matt Reeves on board and, and he's the consistent factor within this. So as long as he's still on board, I'm still intrigued by this for what he wants his universe to be. But for somebody who, for Matt Reeves, who probably doesn't want to focus on just this one show, he wants to be able to say, okay, this is where we want to go with the show and then give it to somebody else to do. It didn't seem like he was able to do that with Terrence Winter. So I hope he's able to find somebody that aligns with what he wants to do. They lock in, say, okay, this is what we can do. This is how we can go and then go forward with it. And when you talk about Marvel, and again, I don't love bringing up Marvel and DC, but comparatively, this is what I'm going to do. So I'm going to compare the two. So when it comes to, to Marvel, again, the plan that they've always had is Kevin Feige. Okay, this is where I want, this is where the characters are. This is where we need them to end up. You can do this. I need A to, to Z. You can do B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V from there. You can do whatever you want in between those from A to Z. But I need that to be filled in with something. But I need them to end up in these two areas from beginning to end. And that's what Matt Reeves should have done. He should have been like, listen, sat down with Terrence Winter and be like, Terrence, this is where we see this this going. This is where the, we this is where we need the GCPD to end up so that it can link into what we want with the Batman. But we want this to be a show about crime, corruption, greed. So as long as you have those basic parameters in play, go and have fun in this sandbox. So if they told him that, that's what you do, and you hash out the characters and what you want to do with the story from there. I just don't understand that. And it's this isn't just one instance. Again, with DC, and, and again, it, this hasn't happened recently. It, it's happened in the past. And so it, it just, whenever you hear something like this happening in a DC property, you just get annoyed by it because you're like, haven't we learned anything by now? And they have learned. They definitely have over the years. They haven't had the problem that they had in 2016 and 2017, but you don't want those problems to keep on moving forward. So I hope they. this is just an aberration and they don't have this happening moving forward. So what do you guys think about this instance, this little speed bump in the road of Terrence Winter leaving the Batman show? Let me know what you think and leave your thoughts. And one of the last things that I want to talk about today is... Uh, a little bit of Transformers news that came out from Deadline. It's been reported that Creed 2 director Steve Capel Jr. is in talks with Paramount Pictures and Hasbro for directing one of their brand new films in the Transformers franchise. And this was this is coming off the heels of apparently two scripts that were in pre-production being written that are ready to go. And one of them is, sit, is ready to move forward to the next stage of pre-production. And according to insiders, this is from Deadline. 
deadline. Insiders add, while negotiations have yet to begin, Stephen Cable Jr. is the top choice among studio execs and producers, and a deal should close in the coming weeks. After meeting with several top execs, including Paramount Motion Picture President Emma Watts, the studio saw Cable as the best fit for the franchise that the studio chose to revamp at the top of the year. So the first big takeaway from this is no more Michael Bay. Michael Bay doesn't seem like he has anything to do with this Transformers franchise anymore, and there's new blood in it. And if it's Stephen Cable Jr. that's going to start kind of leading off this new fresh air of Transformers films, I'm all for it. Because even though I didn't think Creed 2 was on obviously the level of the first Creed, I thought Stephen Cable Jr. did a fairly really, fairly good job of holding that film together and taking the baton from Ryan Coogler, who was doing Black Panther at the time, with that for with that second film and kept kind of kept the influences of Ryan Coogler in there with his first film and instituted it in that second film while also adding his own flair in there and kept and kept the consistency going. So I think for Stephen Cable Jr., this is a huge bump for him, and he knows how to make a Hollywood franchise film. He did it again with Creed 2 and even though it's not on the level of a Transformers film or, or a comic book film Creed the first Creed made a lot of noise with critical buzz and was a, a big box office performer in 2015 and, and it was on, I know it was on my list and I know it was on a lot of people's list for most anticipated films when it came out in 2018 so I think for Stephen Cable Jr. he did a, a commendable job an admirable job in that second film and he deserves a shot like this and again more diversity voices within this community of big blockbusters and I'm excited to see him put his own stamp on it and we saw it with Bumblebee when it came out in 2018 as well where you didn't have Michael Bay it was a different kind of film it even though at the time they were trying to connect all these films together it felt like its own standalone film harkened back to the cartoon the toy models from Hasbro with these Transformers and it felt like a better story that had action but was also intimate and had some heart really good characters human characters and I think that's what the the Transformers franchise needed and I think they saw that where it's basically let's let's clean the whole slate and it seems like that's what they did they have two scripts in production again one of them's ready to go and if this one's kind of whether it's two films that connect with one another or two different films entirely I think it's exciting that we have somebody like Stephen Cable Jr. that can bring his own his own flair to this franchise and do something interested in it and again Travis Knight did something great with Bumblebee so I'm excited to see what Stephen Cable Jr. is able to do with this new Transformers franchise. So I think the biggest takeaway from this is that, again, no more Michael Bay. And even though I'm a I'm a guilty pleasure fan of Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, Transformers Dark of the Moon, the last two, Transformers 4 and Transformers 5, were absolute piles of, of dog doo-doo. They were absolute piles of trash. So I think you needed a fresh voice in here. You got one of them first with Travis Knight, and now you get somebody new with this. I'm all for it. I'm excited to see what he's able to do with this franchise moving forward. What do you guys think about Stephen Cable Jr. coming on board for the Transformers franchise? Let me know and leave your thoughts below. And the final thing that I want to talk about today on the Sam Bissell podcast is the marks of Cinemark and Universal coming in with a brand new deal for a shortened release window like what Universal did with AMC. And according to the reports, Universal will be having a 
release window with Universal for their films of 17 days, like AMC. However, there are some new chinks in the armor with this new deal. Apparently, if a film from Universal clears $50 million plus its opening weekend, the window extends from a three-week window, 17-day window, to a five-week, 31-day window. And that basically attributes to films like Fast and Furious, The Jurassic World, and other surprise films if they clear 50. And if, if a film is tracking well, say if it makes under 50, but it's tracking pretty well for its budget, then potentially they could, Universal and, and, and Cinemark could be like, well, let's keep the window open. So initially, when you look at this, like the AMC deal, shrinking the, the theatrical window, which is basically like the holy Bible of theatrical exhibition where if that crumbles, the theater going is over, it's done. So when people hear that the, that cinema caved in and theatrical window is shrinking, people are gonna say the sky is falling, the sky is falling, that the theater exhibition is over, it's done with, no more. On one hand, this this does not bode well for the theatrical sense of, well, for, for mid-level budgeted films, they, it might not do entirely well. However, I would say that this deal, this, specifically this deal with Cinemark and Universal adds some flexibility because of having this this little notation that, well, if a film does well in its run initially, we can extend the window. I think that could be a really good sign moving forward and I think could add flexibility to it, which is, I think, what the theatrical window needs is, is flexibility. And when reading an article from The Hollywood Reporter, it was said in, in this instance, I'm going to read this. It was, it was found out by marketing officials. While well, we found just 17 films released in both 2018 and 2019, 34 total, about 3% of films released that opened to 50 million or more at the domestic box office. These films eventually contributed about 80% of the domestic box office in those two years. Reviewing a selection of 13 universal films over the past several years, we found that 77% of the box office receipts came within 17 days, while 90% were recouped in 31 days of the eight that opened below 50 mil which would have been eligible for the 17-day pvod window had they been released under this new deal structure four likely would have been targeted for early pvod release specifically pacific run uprising skyscraper first man and cats of the remaining four films two almost certainly would have remained in theaters beyond 17 days given their momentum such as sing and get out and two could go either way due to little and yesterday this suggests that the deal was structured in a way that benefits all parties and i basically agree with that summation where if you see a film that is failing like a cats or even a doolittle you move it to PVOD and both the theatrical the theatrical releases exhibition get a cut, even though it's one or two percent, not a whole lot, but still you get something. You also get the the the, the studio gets a portion of that as well. And so you're working in tandem together. And that could bode well for these films. And I think when you do look at the the negative instances of this potentially is that the one thing this really does reek of, and I agree with this, is that it does reek of desperation. 
from the theater side, from AMC, from Cinemark. We don't know if Regal is going to cave to this yet. But the reason that it reeks of desperation is because the theaters don't have anything right now. And they can't put out big blockbusters because those are going to crash and burn. All due respect to Tenet, we saw, especially what happened in the domestically, it bombed. So you only have these small films coming out, but people are going to go to the theaters for those. So theaters are losing money by the day as long as they stay open. And they need something to keep them consistently going. AMC has said, as long as Universal keeps putting out content, we will stay open. And honestly, Universal is the only place that is putting out content. The last three weeks, their film have come out the number one at the top of the box office from Let Him Go, Come and Play, and I believe this weekend was Freaky, which came from Universal and Blumhouse. They didn't do well. They, they, they performed below expectations, which is expected. Freaky this weekend did $3.4 million. It came in below expectations when box office prognosticators had it making over $4 million. So th- there's not a whole lot coming out, but if they, there's still content moving, maybe people might be coming out for it. And Universal is doing that for the, a studio that at first the theaters were angry about for being the first one to do PVOD. Universal is now the studio that is keeping theaters open with just a flow of content. It's coming from their their smaller studios like Focus Features. And again, Blumhouse is helping them out as well. And we're going to see the crudes come out. They still have Promising Young Woman for Focus Features. They have News of the World with Tom Hanks directed by Paul Greengrass, a major awards contender coming out on Christmas Day. You still have some films that are coming out that, again, aren't going to make noise, but it keeps the doors open and could get some people to flock to the theaters during this holiday time, especially if you don't have films like Free Guy, Death on the Nile, which moved, and in all likelihood, Wonder Woman 1984 is going to move from its Christmas Day release. release. So I think this does reek of desperation. That's really the negative connotation when it comes to this story. But in the end, I do think this this works for both sides. And whether it, it, it works moving forward when COVID-19 is done and you have films like Fast 9, Jurassic World, and even the smaller films come out and maybe the money is dis- disproportionate that you come back to the table or you might want to pull out from the deal, I, I'm not really sure from that instance. And the only other negative connotation to this could be how are audience members going to react to this? Because with 2020, with the COVID-19 pandemic, people have gotten used to watching things from their own home. And honestly, watching a film at home is cheaper than if you go out with a family of five or six and you spend $90 million on just tickets alone and then God knows what else you spend on concessions if you have that big of a family. So I think people... People will still go to the theaters, especially when you have films like Jurassic World, Dominion, and Fast 9, and a lot of other big blockbusters coming out. People will still go to those, but when it comes to the smaller films, that could be a little bit more of a dicey situation. I think that, from the artistic standpoint, it might not bode well, but I think for business, I think it's a good strategy, and I think it keeps theaters alive for this instance right now in a better way than they would beforehand. So... I think in the end, this is going to bode well for both sides. 
and we'll see what happens in the future. But I think for right now with COVID-19, this is a benefit over a detriment when it comes to the future after COVID, when we can go back to some kind of normalcy with without social distancing, without masks, and we can all cram into theaters once again in some way, then those conversations can be had. But right now, I think this is the best course of action moving forward, even though it really does reek somewhat of desperation from the theater side. What do you guys think about this deal with Cinemark? Let me know down below and leave your thoughts below. But with that, guys, that's going to be it for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. I know it was a long one. Thank you for sticking with me if you have stick till the very end. But there was a lot to talk about today, and I wanted to get through all of it so you guys can stay informed of what's going on around the world of Hollywood. So thank you so much once again for tuning in. And as always, be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in onto the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on there, such as You Mad Bro? the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also check out goal-driven professionals geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also check out The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. Also along the way, check out these other awesome shows on the podcast solutions, such as Wrestle Addict Radio, WrestleMania podcast and Midnight Showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com. Also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code Ambiguous. Also, when you get a chance, make sure to follow me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Bissell Samuel. That's B U S E L S A M U E L. That's B U S E L S A M U E L. And on Facebook at Sam Bissell. Thank you guys again so much, and until next time, keep on screening.